I'm Alex and this is the Geordie Guide to Happiness. Welcome to episode 23. It's a new year and we're back with a new episode after a short break over Christmas. As always, I'm here in our virtual studio with the rest of the podcast team, Kath, Chris and Dom. Hello, everyone. Hello. How's everyone doing? Excellent. Good. Yeah. Yeah. Full of beans. Full of beans. (laughs) The needle on the beansometer is pointing to 10. I thought you said fish fingers, actually, that you'd had for your tea. No, I'm just always suggest that as an an easy kind of evening meal. I think the best fish finger sandwich I ever had was at the Butterfly Cabinet in Heaton. They do good oh, fish finger sandwiches. Oh, a lovely place. Oh, mm-hmm. I yum, yum, yum. Yeah. What about you, Chris? Have you been up to anything interesting? Oh, you're putting me on the spot. Um, so, no, it's fine. And I'm, I'm, my life is obviously kind of really, you know, it's it's all go. Uh, go, go, go. And... Uh, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> the other one keeps stalling for time while I think of something here. Yeah, it's, it's, not like, it's not like I didn't know you were going to ask me something. So maybe maybe people could write in uh, and give me some suggestions for things I could do. There's some gallows humour to it, though, because, I mean, it's dark nights and we're not really allowed to leave the house anyway. So to ask what we've been doing is kind of like adding insult to injury. <laughs> I was I was sitting at my desk all day today, and Dom, I know you said that you almost fell asleep at your desk today. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, I I had to get out and go for a run, um, and I mm. felt so much better for it. Even though, as you say, it was dark. It was four o'clock ish, and it was dark. Mm. Um, but just being out in the fresh air um, made such a difference. Really helped. <laughs> Well, I admire that, and I did actually. You're being very kind because I did actually fall asleep, <laughs> and uh, and just sent an email that just consisted of the word. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear! <laughs> uh, shall we uh, introduce this week's guest interview? Yes. Um, Just before Christmas, I talked to Dan Jackson, who is the author of the book The Northumbrians, Northeast England and Its People. We had a great chat about what he found out about happiness while researching the book, as well as the joy and pleasure he gets from facts and research. So here's my interview with Dan. Very warm welcome to the Geordie Guide to Happiness. Thank you so much for talking to us. Well, thank you so much for the invitation. I'm delighted to be here. Well, you came highly recommended from one of our previous podcast interviewees, Bill Kokoran, who uh, talked to us about uh, his work with the West End Food Bank, and he said you've got mm. to talk to Dan. So uh, we are talking to talking to you now. So thank you. Oh, my pleasure. Would you mind for the uh, listeners, perhaps just setting the scene for us, can you just perhaps introduce yourself, tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, certainly. Uh, my, my name is Dan Jackson. I'm the, I'm the author of a, of a recently published book called uh, The Northumbrians, Northeast England and Its People, A New History. And uh, it's done pretty well and, and it seems to have struck a chord with readers across the northeast and beyond and what I tried to do with that book was um, try and explain and understand why the Northeast is still, in my view, one of the most distinctive parts of England, the UK, 
um, and why that might be the case. And because I'm a historian by background, an academic historian by background, although I don't do that anymore these days, I've always been fascinated by history and I guess particularly the history of the Northeast because I think it's such a fascinating story. And I try and trace the distinctive characteristics of the people who live in the Northeast, the Geordies, although I call them Northumbrians <laughs> for reasons we might get into later on. Um, I trace that their distinctive qualities, particularly friendliness, sociability, some of the macho stuff that we mm-hmm. might be familiar with, mm-hmm. back to the unique nature of the Northeast of England, its position first as a dangerous frontier zone for many centuries. Uh, and then as the kind of crucible of the Industrial Revolution and the home to some of the heaviest of heavy industries, which were equally as dangerous. And that shared experience of danger, of well-paid work, which gave you disposable income to spend on things like beer, yeah, um, I think were at the root of a lot of the sociability you still see in the Northeast. And uh, there's a chapter in the book called Hard Work and Hedonism. And I think that sums up the two sides of the same coin, the story of the northeast of England, which is yeah, if yeah. you do hard, dangerous, stressful work, guess what you like to do at the weekend? Yeah, yeah. And, you, uh, you get that in, yeah. the, in the big industries, didn't you? You know, you hear stories of people working in the shipyards, the coal mines that, yeah, after a hard day's graft, it was down the pub. It was, or the social, social club, working mm-hmm. men's clubs and all that. I mean, I'm from a place called New Hartley which is an old pit village, you know, basically between Blythe and Seton Delaville. And um, and the pit in New Hartley closed in the late 1950s. Although I grew up, I spent a lot of time with my grandparents when I was a kid, and my granddad was a coal miner. Um, he just retired when I was a kid. But uh, So I grew up with those stories of coal mining. And I think it's fair to say a lot of people in the Northeast had this weird love-hate relationship with it because yeah. it was so hard and dangerous grueling and unpleasant at times but it was also weirdly romantic Mm. and it's a hard it's two views are hard to reconcile at times but my grandfather lived all that he he experienced great hardship and saw his friends his best mate Geordie lost an arm underground he tells a great story of going to visit him in hospital and uh, they all shuffled into the the ward in the RVI and Geordie opened one eye and said well lads Someone else will have to shuffle me dominoes now. And uh, <laughs> so I grew up with these these quite uh, these great stories of uh, coal mining in particular, uh, which is the ultimate skilled work. And my grandfather missed it for the rest of his life. You know, when he retired, he just talked about it all the time. And sometimes I get people who are fed back on the book, oh, you shouldn't romanticize the past, you know, you should. And I hope I don't do that. But the problem is the coal miners themselves romanticized their work. That's why they wrote poems about it or painted pictures about it or wrote songs about it because it was such a thrilling, dangerous, unique way of uh, making a living, really. I I think there's always a tendency to look sort of through rose-tinted glasses as well, isn't there, when when you look back as well. You might not be able to answer this question. This might be a tricky one, but what about happiness then? Has, did did you come across any stories of, of, of happiness as part of your yeah. research for the for the book? Well, actually, my, my grandparents were such a formative influence on my life. And my grandmother always had this saying when she talked about growing up in... She was born in uh, New Hartley in 1922. And uh, 
She's telling me stories too. Um, her dad was Irish, an Irish coal mine. A lot of Irish people came over to work in the northeast in the pits and shipyards and so on. But she always used to say, and my granddad said it as well. I don't know who who coined the phrase first, you know, but used to say, "We had nout, but we were happy." Mm. Now I don't know if that was strictly true or not, and maybe it was. Just, people are susceptible to nostalgia, aren't they? Yeah. And you know, growing up in the depression, in the in the Northumberland coal field. My grandmother's sister died at 19 years old of diabetes. I mean, mm. do you imagine such a thing, dying of diabetes? Mm. So real tragedy, the danger of the, the work that everyone was engaged in. We used to hear stories about our neighbours who were turfed out of the terraced house because their father was killed in the pit. And pre-nationalised coal industries, the coal owners could be pretty cruel. And So I grew up with those stories. But then my grandmother... Um, would say we had now, but we were happy. And I think what she was driving at was the sociability thing. And I, I saw the kind of glowing embers, as I like to describe it as, the glowing embers of that pit village world growing up there in the 1980s, where there was people who were, you know, my grandparents' age or older, who'd grown up in that ludicrously tight-knit, claustrophobically tight-knit communities where gossip was a real currency, and, you know, the twitching neck curtains, remember that, and the competitive domesticity about who had the cleanest nets or the <laughs> shiniest front step and all that type of stuff. But it was a great place to grow up in, I must say. I had a blissfully happy childhood in that environment. And I think it's partly because these people were in it together and the, the, um, the mutuality and mutual support and shared experience and humour, mm-hmm. um, and black humour at times, yeah. uh, in the face of hardship, all contributed to this uniquely sociable thing. And all the institutions that they that they were proud of, like the co-op or the workmen's club or the churches, you know, all that stuff contributed to this intensely sociable world. Mm. Um, no man was an island um, in that in that. In those communities, some people couldn't wait to get away. Of course, some people found it too claustrophobic. Yeah, yeah. But others thrived in it, and I was one of those who thrived in it. And and, and I think my grandparents probably were too. And my mother and uh, and uh, although my dad's from Newcastle, uh, he th- thought it was a strange world when he first came to the pit villages. But yeah, I think that's what they were driving at. That's where the the uh, sense of happiness came from. It was all together. There's another saying actually. Um, they used to say about people from North Shields and South Shields. All together, like the folks of Shields, which was okay. partly a reflection I've, of. I've how, not heard that one before. That's a new one for me. Well, it was partly a reflection, I think, of the really cramped um, housing conditions. But it was also the same sort of thing that I've just been talking about. It was they were in you know, fishing communities where, where often men were away for months at a time. So the women were in charge and they all had to help each other out. So there was that solidarity thing, mm. I think. Which is it? Which is a, a touchstone for so many places in the northeast, which I've always been interested in, and I think it still explains what people find attractive about the place, um, which is a selling point for the northeast. I think. So, what are your? You know, obviously, we want to encourage people to to read your book, of course. But what you know, we don't want to spoil any spoilers. Too many spoilers. But yeah, what do what do you think of the the sort of key the the key things that you've, you you discovered then as part of your research that what what is it that makes um, 
the Northeast distinct because, you know, this podcast is called The Geordie Guide to Happiness. We're yeah. kind of um, wanting to explore, you know, whether being here in, in the Northeast, Newcastle specifically, um, you know, does that bring a, a different kind of happiness um, or, or not? Uh, what is it about the Northeast that you think makes it distinctive? And a great place to be, of course. Yeah. Um, well, I think there's the environment, um, the built environment, the natural environment that we're privileged to experience every day. In fact, there's a, there's a brilliant writer called Harry Pearson who I'd recommend his books. He's written two brilliant books about the Northern League, which is the, the you know the main amateur football league in the Northeast. And uh, Harry's written for the Guardian and various other places. He wrote a piece a few years ago about um, the, and he's from Middlesbrough originally. And um, Harry's got this great line about tea ciders <laughs> are a sort of strange hybrid of Geordies and Yorkshiremen. They're like <laughs> okay. a good time, but not at those prices, which I think is a great, <laughs> is a great line. And uh, but, uh, so Harry's kind of kind of have that outside of you sometimes about time, you know, the Northeast. And, it, and Harry's had, had this great line about the pathological friendliness of the Northeast stems from one thing. I think I'm quoting correctly here. And that is most Geordies consider themselves blessed to have been born here. Mm-hmm. And that's why people have such a strong attach- attachment to the place, not just the beautiful architecture and countryside, but the people as well. And the friendliness of the people, which I I think is bred in the fact of, of shared centuries of shared hardship. And I trace it all the way back to the Roman Wall, which first established the Northeast as a frontier zone, which yeah. was raided by various people from over the centuries, from Vikings to Scotsmen um, to the Luftwaffe to whatever. You know, it was on the, it was always on the front line. And then it became home to, the Northeast became home to the two most lethally dangerous occupations on the planet in the 19th and 20th centuries, which were coal mining, which was ridiculously dangerous. I mean, I grew up in New Hartley, as I said earlier, and, in, and we grew up with the story of, in 1862, New Hartley pit disaster, 204 mm-hmm. men and boys were killed yeah. on one morning when the, the, the beam engine snapped, blocked up the shaft, and the men couldn't get out, so they slowly suffocated. Horrible tragedy. But the thing that always stuck, stuck in my mind was, of this, the stories of that tragedy, was how many people rushed to the pit head to help. To help. There was never any shortage yeah. of volunteers to try and get the, the, these men out, even though they knew it was going to be dangerous. And Kevin Keegan's grandfather was one of those um, when there was the West Stanley disaster in 1909, Frank Keegan. You know, there's all these stories of shared hardship. Uh, But even more dangerous than coal mining, which had this horrific annual death toll, was seafaring. Yeah. Particularly until the safety measures were brought in in the late 19th century by Samuel Plimsoll, you might have, listeners might have heard of, because ships often used to be overloaded, which made them prone to capsizing in bad weather and, you know, Thousands of British sailors were, were, were drowned at sea within sight of the coast. That's why there's the world's oldest life brigades at Tynemouth. It was established in 1864. It's why the lifeboat was invented on the Tyne by William Woodhouse in the 1820s. Uh, danger, you know, we, we all need to pull together. And and because and what's often overlooked about some of these industries, people have this view of the past in the Northeast as very downtrodden, which it was in the, in the Depression period, without question. But other than that, the industries in the Northeast were unusually well paid. So there's this amazing sense of history of consumption in its broadest sense in the Northeast. I've already touched on beer and going out and all that sort of stuff. 
But there's a tradition of getting dressed up as well in the northeast. Uh, the Bonnie Pit Laddie and the Bonnie Pit Lassie, because they had money to spend on clothes, and Gananoot was a big deal, and you had money to spend. And so, therefore, there's a there's a fascinating parallel history of retail in the northeast, and some of the most pioneering retailers. First, Bainbridge's was the world's oldest department store. You know, it was founded on Market Street in Newcastle in the 1830s. Mm. First one in the world. Then you've got Fenix that came along after them, and Fenix was one of the first shops to put um, the prices on their goods because it used to be quite an intimidating experience to go shopping. But Fenix were like, we'll take anyone's money. Come in, have a look around, browse. You know, the <laughs> aspirational shopper, you could, you could save up and come back and buy that or whatever. And so I, the, the shared hardship thing and the culture of hedonism and everyone being in the same boat as well because the, the, the Northeast's industries, the dominance of a handful of industries meant that everyone was often literally in the same boat. But they had, you know, in about 1900, something like 40% of all adult males in County Durham were coal miners, which, you know, it was unprecedented to have a, a proportion of, of the male workforce occupied in a single profession. Mm. There used to be much more diversity in the other parts of the country. So everyone had that shared experience, shared expectations. Great store was placed, placed on mutuality and friendship and sociability, hence, you know, the growth of the trade unions. In the Northeast, the Labour Party, you know, uh, uh, workmen's clubs, uh, women's institute, church organisers, all that stuff has been such a key part of the Northeast. We're not a great... I don't think we're a, a region of great individualists necessarily. I think there is certainly, there can be a sort of herd mentality a lot of the time, which has its downsides, I guess. Um, but I think that's where the, the, the friendliness comes from. And it's it's always been anecdotally strong. You know, you get people who come up here and go, people are so friendly, you know, they talk to you at the checkout or the bus stop or, or you know, they give you directions or whatever. It's, and it's hard to back that up with the, the extremely rigorous evidence, but you just see it recurring through the centuries about, you know, people would just talk to you. Um, well, as, as someone who was born and grew up in London, you know, as a Londoner, I can totally see the difference between, I mean, London's a great place. I've said this before oh, yeah. in other yeah. episodes, but there is just something about just saying hello to complete strangers as you're walking past them on, on a walk or talking yeah. to somebody on the bus. It, yeah. it's it's such a strong thing yeah i totally yeah. get it yeah. people thrive and um i think we're a region of extroverts as well and we get our in the sense of that's where we get our energy from is i think that's why people are missing well, well this lockdown period's been so difficult for people you know because especially for the northeast when you're missing that you know i'm that not particularly i've got a season yeah. ticket on the in the gallagher end but I, i'm not missing the football so much as i'm just missing the crack yeah. With the lads, you know, and going for a yeah. few beers before and afterwards. Yeah. And actually, just as a footnote to that, people tend to spend, spell the word crack in this confected Irish spelling with C-R-A-I-C. I think that was just a Guinness marketing ploy in the 1980s. Crack, <laughs> crack spelled C-R-A-C-K, is a very old Northumbrian word. And it means exactly what you think it means. It means good humour, good company mm. in the pub. Um, and we've been talking about crack for centuries. So well, there's a line in um, Dance to Your Daddy, you know, come here, me little Jackie, let's have some cracky till the board comes in. You know, that, that gets to the heart of the distinctiveness of, of Northumbrian culture. I think it's one of my favourite phrases. Yeah. 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 
Mm. So that's that, that's been a that's been a, a big miss, and I think it's a source of happiness for a lot of people. Is um, mm. a few beers. <laughs> so I, I I love in the last few minutes you've thrown all of these facts out <laughs> from the Tymouth Life Brigade to you know coal mining villages. Yeah, that's obviously a big love of, of yours. Yeah, facts and research. Does does that bring you happiness? Then it must do. Yeah, it does. Especially sharing it with people. Um, people have got a fascination with the, the past, and sometimes they feel weirdly um, not ashamed is too strong. But I, I, I'd often get people like sidling up to me at like at book events and say, "Oh, I love, I love history, me." You know, like under the breath. Go, <laughs> like it's a dirty secret. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. Oh, it's great. All oh, this, I love it. Uh, well, good. Yeah, it's your story. It's a story of you. It's 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 a story of your family. Your mm. why we are the way we are. There's a, there's a term I use in the book called cultural archaeology, which I really like, which is to try and explain the present. You've got to like dig through the strata of history to understand all the influences, all the overlapping, all the strata of history, really. And um, and it is a great pleasure of mine. I, I love um, obviously I love reading history. I love you know pottering around old libraries, going to the Lytton Phil, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. looking at their book collection, uh, leafing through. Um, um, collections of old photographs is a real pleasure of mine, and there's some great stuff I'd recommend to your listeners. There's a, a few people on Twitter who are worth worth a follow. There's the Northeast Heritage Library who are uh, recently set up who share some great stuff. There's Steve Elwood, Tyne Snapper. He he shares some great photographs. And if you go on Flickr, which is a photograph sharing website, there's a guy called Billy Embleton who shares some absolutely fascinating photographs of the past of you know, the launch of Japanese uh, warships on the Tyne in the 1890s or, mm-hmm. you know, images of underground at Ashton College. You know, just amazing, fascinating images of of the past. Um, and it's always been something I've been fascinated by because you can't, I think, maybe it's more obvious. It's a stupid thing to say, really. But I, I when I grew up in New Hartley, I grew up in the shadow of a place called Seton Delaville Hall. That you, mm-hmm. your listeners I was have. there at the weekend. I was at Seton Sluice at the weekend. Well, yes, going for a walk. Yeah, there you go. And it, it, I grew up in the shadow of that, and it was just captured my imagination. This amazing brooding, uh, just fabulous building. It's 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 Vanbrugh's masterpiece, in my opinion. And uh, Vanbrugh's got an interesting backstory because um, you know he's a playwright before he was an architect. He was also a spy for a while, and he was locked up by Louis the Fourteenth. And imprisoned in the Bastille in Paris, and if you look at old, obviously that was pulled down in the French Revolution. But you look at images of the Bastille, which is this castle, basically French castle. It looks a bit like the main block of Seton Delaval Hall with the turrets on the corners. And what I think Vanbrugh did brilliantly was he combined the sort of um, uh, Enlightenment building traditions in the continent with the sort of the native Northumbrian styles, particularly fortifications. And you get the Palladian, Baroque, and then the fortification traditions of Northeast England all melded together into this fantastic building. So I was fascinated by those stories, by the pit disaster, by the stuff I learned at the the feet of my grandparents. And it just snowballed from there, really. Um, So it's a source of great, great pleasure still to this day and uh, I think more and more people are finding that out just judging mm-hmm. by the feedback I've got from the book you know that people mm-hmm. have people have said stuff like I understand it now I understand why 
we behave the way we do. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm quite willing will- to be challenged on my thesis on all this, of course, but, you know, people, it seems to have struck a chord anyway. I used to work at Tynanwyr Archives and Museums many, many years ago, and we used to organise um, sort of behind-the-scenes tours of Discovery Museum, of yeah. the, the Great North Museum. Oh, I was like I was like a kid in the sweet shop when, yeah. you know, you got to go behind the scenes and, you know, open, you know, before the Hancock was, you know, the Great North Museum, you'd go in and you'd open drawers and you never knew what you were yeah. going to find. And the excitement was just just brilliant. I loved it. And it's just something I've always, always been fascinated by. And so is that where it's sort of come from for, for, for you, just that growing yeah. up and discovering things as you, as you grew up? Yeah, definitely. And being taken into the museums in Newcastle as well as a child, um, the the Hancock Museum sticks in my mind because everyone was taken to see. Two things you always stood out. One was the mummies, yeah. um, you know, and then the other one was the spider crab. And I can just still there. The, yeah, being terrified. <laughs> yeah, they're still there, aren't they? But I was fortunate enough to be uh, invited by the wonderful people at the Discovery Museum to just come and select a few of my favourite items from their collections and, we, and, and record a you know, short films on each of them explaining some of the background and context to a range of items, actually. So I had, it was exactly as you said, it was like a kid in a sweet shop just to be able to choose whichever items caught my fancy. And one of those that I think, I've got a handful of things that I think are, you know, some of the real treasures of Newcastle. And one of them is, um, it's a shipbuilder's model of a battleship called HMS Nelson, that was launched at Walker in uh, 1925, I think it was. This colossal battleship had a really interesting career in the Second World War. And there's a, there's a shipbuilder's model the size of a rowing boat in a glass case, you know, there's the usual story. But it's so detailed and it, it just tells a story of the incredible sophistication of the stuff that was built on the River Tyne. And I first saw it when I was a kid, and like most young lads, I suppose, although I don't know if it's still the case these days. You know, you grow up in the shadow of the Second World War to an extent, and all that stuff is just fascinating. Military history has always been a real interest of mine, a very nerdy interest, I must say. <laughs> Not shared with that many people, I guess, these days, but uh, because I had my father was in the military, my grandfather, family members, in the end, classmates, ended up in the military, and that's always been a big part of the Northeast story, actually. Again, going back centuries, right to from the point that Emperor Hadrian sailed up the River Tyne, you know, in the, in the second century, it became this militarised frontier. And then it became eventually the front line uh, between England and Scotland. And and then in the Civil War and the Jacobite rebellions and the Napoleonic Wars and, and, the, and you know, the amount of sailors who came from the Tyne and the Weir was matched only by London. And then you get this weird period in the 19th century where you finally get the first prolonged period of peace in the history of the Northeast. And guess what? The River Tyne starts to specialise in making guns and warships, mm. which kind of fits with that general martial tradition of the Northeast, which is, I think, curiously overlooked, actually, in our story, because it's been such a fundamental part of our identity and our sense of ourselves as either a frontier zone or the dockyard or arsenal of the British Empire. And then in the 20th century, this huge recruiting ground for the Army and Navy and Air Force, which is an extraordinary part of our story. I mean, uh, one of the things that gave me enormous pleasure, um, which, which you established before the centenary of the outbreak of the First World War in 2014, was um, 
a project we call the Tynemouth World War I Commemoration Project. Because a friend of mine, Alan Fiddler, discovered in North Shields um, Library this document called the Tynemouth Roll of Honour. Tynemouth was the name of the borough then that included North Shields and Tynemouth Village and the outlying pit village and so on. And it was a list of names of almost 2,000 men from Tynemouth Borough who'd been killed in the First World War. And it had very basic information about them, this name, rank, sometimes it had an address, that kind of thing. And it was printed in by the local paper in, I think, 1921 or 22, very early 20s anyway. And we found this thing, and, and Alan had this brilliant idea to say, why don't we get a team of volunteers together to research the lives of all these men? Because in a small place like Tynemouth, as was, which only had a population of 58,000 in 1914, so half of them would be men. You know, what, what does that give you? Um, 29,000 men, about half again would have been of military service age or a bit less. So 2,000 out of 14, you know, something like one in seven men mm. were killed in the First World War. The national rate was about one in eight. So one in seven. I've never been quite a traumatic experience for the people who lived in the town. And uh, so anyway, we, we've got some... We were very fortunate enough to get some heritage lottery funding to do this properly. And what we did was um, we recruited um, genealogists because it's a thriving uh, scene, the genealogical scene, <laughs> uh, if you just got to go to the local studies libraries to see them. But they've often exhausted their own family trees and they've got these amazing skills that we could put to work researching the lives of these men. So that's what that was the that was the the core of the project, I guess, was to flesh out the stories of these men who were killed. And we came across some incredibly moving stuff. One sticks in my mind, a bloke from, um, called Robert Hogg, a Northumberland Fusilier from Churton Westview in North Shields, who his officer wrote to his widow after he was killed in the Battle of the Somme to say there wasn't a cooler man in the trenches. He was always looking out for other people. Um, and then a shell came over and he was trying to encourage everyone who everyone was really strung out in the trench and really stressed unbelievably. And this guy, Robert Hogg, was trying to, you know, encourage all the lads. And he got hit by this shrapnel from the shell. And as he was dying, he said, my poor wife, my poor bairns. And it was, and he left six children. And so it just these, just one after another of these awful stories, you know, yeah. tragic. But people remembered them. And, and what we were also able to do was, it was two amazing things, actually. There's a, a guy on the project called Steve Young, who was a brilliant um, um, uh, IT expert. And he got an old map from um, of, of North Shields and Tynemouth from 1914 with the old streets on them. And we was able to plot um, the, the home addresses of all these men who were killed. And when it's overlaid on this old map, all these yellow dots... It's just staggering, really. You just I've, look at I've, it and think, I've seen, yes, I've seen that visual. It's just, w w when you see it visually, it brings it home, doesn't it? It's, uh, it's yeah. And it, it was just, it was, stag it's, it was staggering to so many people because you had that, actually, you had a greater chance of being killed if you're an officer. The Blackadder myths about the First World War aren't, aren't really accurate. You know, the officers mm. were just as, in fact, a greater risk than, than the men. And there was about 80 odd generals killed in the First World War as well. But, you know, you got that sense of the, the streets near the docks, you know, the kind of real working class areas like Addison Street, I think, had the most men killed just, just above where Smith's Dock is now. Something like 20 or 30 from the one, one street. 
but then you had you know, the posh streets in Tynemouth Village losing men. You've just got to walk down Hotspur Street now to see the blue plaques that we were able to put up on people's houses to say a casual, you know, a man killed in the First World War lived in this house. And it was so encouraging to see the response from local people who were delighted to have these. They're just the size of a beer mat, really, that we we had them professionally made out of metal and, and, and attached to walls and gateposts and so on. And people were thrilled to have them. Um, and people used to turn out for these little unveiling ceremonies. Alan Campbell, who's the time of MP, used to come and attend them as well. It was brilliant, you know, real sense of pride and gratitude and, you know, community. And so that was just so satisfying. And I was, I was delighted that, you know, Alan and the volunteers on the project who, who, who got a lot out of it themselves uh, in terms of like their social lives uh, and so on, the whole project was awarded, as well as the lottery funding, um, a Queen's Award for Voluntary Service. It was fabulous, and we, we've now got the, um, the the name boards in the in the, one of the courtyards at the Linscale Centre in North Shields. All the names listed by street, so it's worth worth a visit. And and the materials, you can just Google it. You can find the stuff online. But that was that was so satisfying to do. It was a great example of a community heritage project that just started off so small and just grew and grew and grew didn't it just the response as you were saying that the people involved um it was great to see um it it absolutely was and i think it allowed us to tell the story of the military contribution of the northeast Mm. in in both world wars which is like i said and i keep harping on about this slightly overlooked you know the northumberland fusiliers raised more battalions than any other regiment of the british army in the first world war dli weren't the durham light infantry weren't far behind them and in the Second World War, the most experienced battle-fighting combat unit in the British Army was the 50th Northumbrian Division, and they fought everywhere. And the spear, spearhead of, <laughs> of the 50th Division was three battalions of the Durham Light Infantry. One of them, I think it's the 8th or 9th Battalion. They were known as the Gateshead Gurkhas, which I really like, because they were, they were short but uh, formidable fighters. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> And Brian Johnson actually just did a, another podcast I'd recommend is the We Have Ways, which is the one that James uh, Holland and Al Murray do about the Second World War. And Brian Johnson from ACDC went on it recently, did an interview about his, because his father was a sergeant major in the DLI and he met his mother out in occupied Italy when the British Army were fighting their way up there. So he met his Italian woman, brought her back to Gateshead. <laughs> and uh, so it's, I've always been fascinated by that part of our story as well. And, and the book and this work with the Discovery Museum has allowed us that, me to reach that, uh, tell that story to a wider audience. Really. So, so facts and research and writing obviously bring you happiness. What, what else brings you happiness, Dan, when you're not writing or looking for facts? <laughs> what do you like to do? Well, outside of my, uh, my family, I, um, uh, we have, I've got two, I've got two daughters and, um, they keep me on my toes, to um, <laughs> say the least. Um, uh, I, like, I like the great outdoors. Um, mm-hmm. Not necessarily in an extreme sports kind of way. I'm not one of those sort of people. <laughs> I like more leisurely pursuits, like just taking the dog out. And um, uh, but I'm, I'm hamstrung at the moment, of course, because my dog is a cocker spaniel called Jordy. He um, he, he kept steering me into pubs all the time. Oh. I don't know. It was a bad How habit. convenient. We couldn't pass the Rockcliffe in Whitley Bay without him going, 
Oh, wait then. Should we go in for some pork scratch? Oh, the it, was cannon. The, it was the dog. It was the dog. It was the dog. Uh-huh. It always is. Yeah, yeah, the it cannon at Erzden as well. I'm, <laughs> I'm just pining for it. I, I walked past it the other day and I was just like looking through the glass, you know, tears oh, in my eyes. I know. I know. Um, so there's that. And there's so much great stuff on the doorstep. Um, you know, I, I live, I don't live far from, you know, the uh, Hollywell Dean, you know, that leads out to Seton Sluice. Great walks around there, down to the lighthouse of Whitley Bay, the whole of the Geordie Riviera, you know, from Tynemouth <laughs> to, to Blythe and beyond. I went to Camus Beach the other day and we've got this amazing, you know, water. Um, it's, it is a Riviera, basically. You know, it's so fantastic. And it's right on our doorstep for us to enjoy. So I get a lot of pleasure from that. As well as um, sort of like urban rambles, you know. I love nothing better than just poking around in places like North Shields or Walls End or, I mean, Newcastle is fab- fabulous, but, you know, just, just having a bit of a poke around streets. I, I, I often find it um, ex- particularly pleasurable when you're just out on the bike, on the bicycle, mm-hmm. you know, cycling around. So you can, you can, you can kind of take your time and drink in this, the kind of urban landscape, I guess. It's a great pleasure of mine that because you just notice things if you're driving through or whatever that you wouldn't necessarily always pick up on. So I like to do that, get out and about on the bike and uh, explore, explore all the stuff that we've got on our doorstep, really. That gives me happiness. You you talked um, in our sort of chat that we had before we we met for, for the recording that you enjoy uh, non-league football. Is that right? I do. Yes. I really, really enjoy non-league football. Um, I always have actually, uh, my great grandfather was the player manager of Blythe Spartans in between the wars. So I grew up with those stories, the famous Blythe Spartans, you know, mm. and then in my teens, I always, you know, been a Newcastle supporter and always went to the matches, but when Newcastle were playing away or whatever, um, a good friend of mine, who had the same name as me, bizarrely. We we met at Seton Sluice Middle School, a lad called Dan Jackson. Uh, so we used to knock about together, confusing everyone. But his dad was the secretary of West Lockman Celtic FC, who played in the Northern Alliance um, against amazing teams in um, exotic locations like Spittle Rovers or Berwick <laughs> or Carlisle Guildford Park and places like that. So uh, his dad was the secretary, so we used to go and watch West Lockman play. And I first got hooked really on non-league football then. And, and you know, as I said earlier, Harry Pearson's the real bard of non-league football because he's written this, these hilarious books called The Far Corner and The Father Corner, um, <laughs> two volume uh, and reflections. Because it's not so much the football as much as I love football. It's just the crowds. I've always been fighting, like eavesdropping conversations or the wit and humour of football crowds. I've just always... Um, there was, a, there was a great... There's a great one. Um, I went to watch North. The two teams I tend to watch most these days are North Shields or Whitley Bay, and they're both in the Northern League. And uh, <laughs> the, um, there was a game. It was in January, actually. North Shields against Newton Aircliffe, I think it was. And there was a really fussy young referee, one of those referees that keeps stopping the game and you know, being a real pedant about little things rather than letting the game flow. You know, yeah. it's always it can get a little bit tasty and. The Northern League, you know, the tackles flying in. <laughs> but he was just getting on everyone's nerves, both teams, the players and so on. And there's one point when he blew up, blew his whistle again, and um, the, the North Shields, <laughs> the North Shields bent, one of them just jumped up and went, how ref, did he get that whistle for Christmas? <laughs> so so it's, it's that kind of stuff I particularly enjoy, really. And the fact that I can take the dog with me. So me and Jordy can share a pie, I'll have a bovril. Um, 
you can even have a pint as well amazingly enough um or you could when the when the games were still on you could take a pint on the terrace it's it's all incredibly civilized you know <laughs> I, I was i was gonna say a good pie can make or break a good football experience as well i find you've got to have a good pie sensational uh steak or mince pies from north shields amazing uh, ham broth from the little hut at Hillheads and Whitby Bay. There's some ladies run the hut by the corner flag. And honestly, just absolutely sensitive. I had to go back for a second helping. It was so good. Ham broth. But because when I went to the last game, I went there, they had the COVID regulations on. Got any broth? Sorry, love, we can't. COVID. COVID. COVID's the excuse for everything (laughs) at the minute. (laughs) I was devastated. But that just adds to my uh, match day experience in a really positive, <laughs> positive way. So we've got football, we've got old pubs, we've got exploring, being outdoors, yep. your family. Yeah, absolutely. Um, anything else? Well, I really got into gardening. Um, really? Yeah, it's a funny, it's a funny thing. I never thought I would, but. Um, quite a big garden out the back and I thought what am I going to do with this thing and um, it was a new estate so it took some work to dig the, the borders out because it's just one of those where you get you know an inch down and it's just all rubble underneath the turf mm. but again I grew up uh, I spent a lot of time on my grandfather's allotment when I was a kid and that had a big effect on me because the produce that he used to grow there was just amazing I've never been able to find the variety of potato sort of sort of small waxy new potatoes you know that just had that kind of really pleasant soil flavor in a good way if you know what i mean yeah um and he used to do this amazing comfort meal of his spuds or his tetties as he used to call them beans and bacon which is still just a sensational meal um so i've got a i've put a little leak trench in the back one of those made out of railway sleepers which i've been experimenting growing potatoes but I actually just really like um, uh, kind of the display side of gardening, if you, if you see what I mean, the um, flowers and, and shrubs and, uh, and that sort of thing. And um, it, it can be a bit tricky for me because I am colorblind, so I'm never quite sure what, what co- color oh, yeah, combinations okay. I'm putting down. And a friend of mine um, I used to work with a lad called uh, Mickey Campbell. It was my old house, actually. He came around and, he, and I said, I've been doing loads of work in the garden and he looked at all this riot of purple and pink and whatever and he went, if John Inman had a garden, it would look like this. <laughs> <laughs> and I went, great, that's exactly what the look I was going for. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> you know, uh, don't great. be afraid of colour. is <laughs> what I'd say. I, I remember living, you know, years and years of student flats magnolia walls when we bought our first flat every single room was a different color because yeah. i think we just lived in magnolia for so long it's like oh we need some color yeah we need some color yellows some color especially and if and if um like me you kind of you, you do um you're in front of a laptop all day shuffling mm. paper metaphorically speaking yeah, yeah you know to just do something different with your hands i think yeah. is uh, a real release and it's satisfying as well you know um thing is with gardening too i've found is it's a lot of trial and error you can't make any hideous mistakes sometimes a plant won't take or whatever you can but you can always dig them up and put them in a different spot and experiment i just love garden centers now i could just spend hours pottering around um there's a have you got to that age now i have yeah that's it yeah i mean there's a couple of great (laughs) great, i mean my my next door neighbors run erston garden center which is excellent there's also cowls 
which is on the way up to the airport. Is that Wolsington? Is that the name of the little village? You know, past the... I think, yes, I think yeah, you're right, yeah. Heading up there. But Cowell's Garden Centre, oh my God, it's just amazing. You walk in, it's just, it's astonishing. You know, you could, I like going this annual trolley dash in spring around Cowell's, you know, just treat myself, bit of Dan time, <laughs> buying <laughs> hostas and things like that. <clears throat> and it's so just rock amazing. and roll, isn't it? I, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, just embrace it. Because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> it gives you quality time in garden centres. Then you've got to put the plants in, you know, you've got to think carefully where they need to go. You know, I'd recommend it to anyone. Yeah. I think we're probably coming to the end of the interview now. Dan, um, how are your happiness levels at the moment? How are you feeling at the moment? Well, I'm generally generally an optimistic person. And um, my day job is I work in the, the NHS and we've had a hell of a year. Mm, it's been that's very, an understatement. <laughs> yeah, it's been hard going, um, stressful at times. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm seeing the light at the end of the tunnel now. Um uh, it's br- brilliant news about the, all the vaccines that are sh- hopefully going to be approved very, very soon. Um, I think um, I'm, I'm privileged to work with some amazing people, and the NHS is a real jewel in the crown of the Northeast. We've got some fabulous organisations, fabulous people who go above and beyond, you know, really inspirational people, actually. And uh, and people are working their socks off to, to get us through this winter because winter is always a challenge for the the NHS just because of the you know respiratory diseases that are circulating around yeah. Yeah. the place usually you know the um, just the, the general winter challenge but now we've got that plus uh, the COVID uh, challenge plus the we've got a lot of work to do in terms of you know meeting the backlog of, of cases that have grown up uh, with these unusual circumstances we've had to live through but yeah. despite all that you know people are still optimistic working hard and, you know, we should be, you know, it all goes well. I don't even want to say it, but, you know, we should be starting on the vaccination progress process very soon. And that will just change everything, I think. It'll be fantastic for people. So we've got Christmas uh, to get through and it'll be a bit odd for a lot of people, I think. But, uh, yeah, we've got that light at the end of the tunnel and it's um, it's grown lighter every day. Yeah. Yeah, we all need a bit of uh, brightness, don't we, I think, in 2021 definitely i think absolutely yeah. absolutely so do you consider so you, you you consider yourself a happy person generally you think? yeah yeah i suppose it's partly because i'm a man of such simple taste really you know you just give <laughs> give me an old pub and a book or an iphone to scroll through i must be honest the <laughs> <laughs> one life's great pleasures is just uh, nursing a pint with uh, with twitter open on the iphone i just think it's fabulous a lot of people say have a kind of downer on social media but i think it depends on who you follow and how you use social media because i've got nothing but pleasure from it you know because you can i can bore everyone to tears with my, my historical facts um you can engage with um i sent a message the other day and i got a response from earl spencer it just popped up. Earl Spencer has responded to your tweet. Princess Diana's brother. You're like, oh, right, thanks, thanks for <laughs> You know, just you have these interactions with people you would never have dreamt of. Absolutely, <laughs> completely yeah. random. Um, so yeah, um, it's a it's a source of pleasure for me. And I'm at Northumbriana if anyone's listening. So you know, give us a follow. Be lovely. <laughs> I was going to say, what are you working on? A new book? Is there anything you want to kind of shout out about at the moment? <clears throat> Well, um, there's a few irons in the fire. My publisher, publishers are keen for me to do another book, but to be honest, it was such a such a hard slog the previous time 
But I'm not ruling it out entirely, and I've been doing bits and bobs of journalism for there's a website called unheard.com, which I write for occasionally, and BBC History Magazine and History Today, and which has been nice just to keep my hand in. But uh, a book is a different sort of proposition. But I'm open to suggestions. Never say never. Indeed. <laughs> well, we shall watch this space then. Yes. Thank indeed. you. Thank you very much, Dan, for your time this evening. No, my pleasure, it's Alex. Been great so chatting much. to you and, and learning learning lots of stuff. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you so much. And uh, I'm enjoying the series so far. And so it's been, a, it's been a real pleasure to be on. Thank you. Thanks a lot. So that was my interview with Dan. I, I really liked all, all the new words he was using, like Jordi Riviera. Oh, that was a great <laughs> term, wasn't it? Yeah, that was a great yeah. one. I enjoyed that. <laughs> but it is, though, isn't it? When you think about it, it's just yeah. when you think about the coastline, it's just beautiful um, all the way down. Spot on. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I like that. I love the bit at the end, actually, when we were talking about gardening and he just sort of dropped into the conversation that he was colorblind and, <laughs> and that he'd done this display of flowers and his friend had come round and uh, said, well, if, if John Inman had done flower arranging, that's what the flower display would look like. And it was just this <laughs> array of color um, all over. So I, I really liked that description of it. Um, that, that cheered me up thinking about yeah bright colours and mm. uh, flowers at a time when it's dark and cold. <laughs> yeah. But he had had so many reasons for why um, Geordies and people, or Northumbrians as he was calling them, mm. uh, are happy people. And that, that included um, going out for a drink was one of the reasons. Mm. And the other reason was because they feel blessed to have been born and live mm. here as well. And it was, it was just really nice the way he phrased that, yeah. Yeah. It's funny, I was thinking about that the other day because um, obviously I'm not from round here. Um, I, I remember the first time I came to Newcastle, which uh, must have been a, a pre-teen and we were visiting friends uh, of my of my parents that lived down here. I just remember thinking how strangely exotic the idea of Newcastle was because it was you know just on the other side of the border and you know, all of, you know, you're sort of emerging to this, this whole kind of different universe that we didn't really know. Obviously, I've been other places like France or whatever, but for some reason, Newcastle felt really, really exotic. <laughs> and just, just to kind of think back, if I told myself at that age that, oh, you'll be back, you'll be living here one day, that mm-hmm. would have been sort of an extraordinary, an extraordinary revelation. And, I, you know, even then, I wouldn't have been unhappy about it. Yeah. It felt like a really sort of cool place to be. But it, but it is exotic. We have a Riviera. <laughs> Oh, that's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, I need to get with the program. And, and the other, the other thing that that he mentioned uh, after the Geordie Riviera were was his enjoyment of going on urban rambles mm. and wandering round villages and uh, local housing estates, etc. And I just thought, wow, somebody else that does that. Mm. <laughs> I love doing that. I think that's popped up in a couple of other episodes as well, hasn't it? I think Charlotte, um, way back way back in the beginning uh, last year, was sort of talking about, um, yeah, just getting on her bike and finding all of these little sort of cut-throughs and, and just going and exploring and seeing where they take you. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's something that you can't really do in the car. 
Um, but, mm. but you can if you go for a walk or a run or on your bike or whatever is, yeah, just sort of going off and exploring and, um, yeah, looking up, looking at the architecture as well. Often we're kind of just focused at sort of uh, human heights and we don't sort of look up at the wonderful architecture above us as well. So, yeah, yeah. I, I enjoyed that bit as well, Kath. There was one there was one phrase that he used, which when he said it, I couldn't believe that we hadn't heard it before because it, it's so Northumbrian. And when he was talking about the, the mining communities and the fishing communities and the, the comment that he'd heard regularly was, we had nought, but we were happy. Yeah. Mm. And I've heard that so many times, but mm. I've never thought about it until he actually said it for this particular mm. podcast. So he, he brought me up short on that one. And these other phrases, there were some other phrases I loved. Uh, gossip as a currency. <laughs> wow, that was that was deep. <laughs> uh, I, I just had a mental picture of all, all these families in, in a terrace uh, whitewashing their steps. And uh, if, if number two hadn't done it right, then... Everyone would ooh, know about it. Everybody oh, would yeah. know about it, yeah. Um, and cultural archaeology was another one he used, um, and it, it was it was like an education in forty minutes, really, because he he just flowed with the whole thing. It was beautiful. Yeah, I I I, I just loved how yeah, as you said that that flow, like these these facts and little nuggets of information, just sort of rolled off the tongue so easily for him, and he clearly loves. Um, yeah, facts and research and um, finding things out, and is is very sort of passionate about the northeast in that sense. Um, so that that's what sort of really struck me as we were talking was just all of the facts that he kept sort of throwing out, just so naturally. Um, <laughs> it was great. It's interesting comparing that with because um, oh, it was the the first steps group because um, I remember talking about. After that, all about you know, the joy that you get from learning new skills and learning to do new things, and this is sort of like the flip side of that coin is that it's you know knowing things about things can also be a source of joy for people. Mm. I mean, not everybody, I think. I think some people are quite happy just to um, just kind of know know what they need to know, and that's it. Uh, but there are other people that are sort of explorers and kind of, they want to kind of accumulate knowledge and you know build up a kind of a big web of information about the world and that's that's how they get a kind of sense of satisfaction yeah definitely i agree so that was dan thank you dan that was great and, and thank you everyone for discussing it uh, uh, another fab episode to kickstart 2021 so thank you if you've been inspired by this podcast episode then we would love to hear from you as always we'd love to hear your stories and opinions on what happiness means to you you can get in touch via email, hello at thegeordieguidetohappiness.co.uk, or you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Geordie Guide, or on Facebook, The Geordie Guide to Happiness. And as always, I want to give a shout out to our funders. This project wouldn't be possible without support from the Newcastle Cultural Investment Fund at the Community Foundation. So thank you so much for your support. And I'm going to hand over to Kath now, who's going to introduce our episode for next week. Kath, what have we got coming up? Yes, I've been talking to Andy Clark, who is part of the Oral History Unit at Newcastle University. And Andy moved into the area 
not too long ago uh, from uh, Scotland. And he's been telling me a little bit about how he has become an adopted Geordie, really. So we cover quite a few different areas. And there are things that I didn't know about Andy, which uh, came out in the podcast. So it was it was a bit of a revelation for me as well. So I thoroughly enjoyed talking to him. So you'll hear me asking questions like this. What are your impressions of, of Newcastle then after a, a year? And you'll hear him giving me some lovely answers like this. I love Newcastle. I think it's a brilliant city. Um, I mean, I'd been to Newcastle once before that I could remember, but that was a stereotypical why the Scottish boys go to Newcastle. You go for a weekend and the drink and you go out to Sinner's Bar and all those stupid things. Because um, my pal lived down this way when he was, we were all working in early 20s, so we had a weekend down just kind of seeing, not seeing the sights, but seeing the pubs mostly. My impression of Newcastle changed so quickly because it's, it's a city that's really undersold um, from the UK perspective, north and south, because you know about Newcastle's the party town, the big market and all that kind of stuff, but when you go beyond that, the likes of Jesmond Dean, Heaton Park, Oosburn, the quayside, it's absolutely stunning. So that's it. We've reached the end of our first episode of 2021. We hope you've enjoyed listening to the Geordie Guide to Happiness so far. Take care and see you all again next week for another episode. Yeah.